If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, for those of you who might be visiting with us today, we're continuing our study through this fascinating book, and you might be wondering, or even our members might be wondering, why would we be spending so much time going through the book of Revelation? So I want to just give you three reasons right off the bat this morning. Number one reason is that we have a promise from God that we will receive a special blessing just by studying the book of Revelation. Look back in chapter number one. We saw this verse a few weeks ago, but I want you to see it again in verse number three. The Bible says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing on those who read it and on those who hear it and on those who obey it. And so who doesn't want to be blessed? And we all do. And so that's one of the reasons. That's probably enough reason itself to study this book. A second reason we're studying Revelation is because it gives us a clear perspective of future events. Everybody's always wondering, where's this world headed to? What in the world is going to happen next? Well, in Revelation, we find exactly what's going to happen, and we even find how the world will one day end. And then the third reason we're studying this book is because it gives us a clear warning that we need to repent of our sins and get right with God, make our peace with God. And so Revelation is not only the blessing book, it is the warning book. And the fact is, most people, and probably the reason that most uh, people are not preaching very much out of Revelation, and the fact that a lot of people might not want to even hear sermons on Revelation, is because we don't like warnings. Warnings tend to frighten us. They intimidate us. And we'd rather hear a more positive approach. I can remember years ago when Hurricane Ike was coming to the Galveston area, and about a, that was back in 2008, and about a day or two before that storm, we were all glued to the television to see where it was going to go, and I would be at home, and I would be watching the weather reports, and one meteorologist said, this storm is coming right to Galveston, it's so strong, it'll make it into Houston, it's going to do great damage. Change the channel, other meteorologists said the same thing. I put it on another channel. And this one meteorologist was so positive, so encouraging, so hopeful. And he said to the audience, he said, now, here's where the storm is now. Here's how the winds are blowing. And I really believe that there's a chance that this storm could take a northerly turn and miss the Galveston area altogether. He said, I think there's a good chance that we might not experience Hurricane Ike. Well, I found myself attracted to that man's forecast. Because it was so hopeful, and it was so positive, and it was so encouraging. And when he finished saying it, I felt so much better about it. The only problem is he was wrong. We all got hit by Ike, right? But the point is, I enjoyed what he had to say more than I enjoyed what the other guys had to say because theirs was doom and gloom. It was here comes the storm. He was maybe it's going to miss us all together. But they were right and he was wrong. And what I'm emphasizing there is we don't like warnings. We don't like that. We would rather hear the positive and we would rather hear something more hopeful and upbeat. Now, what I want you to see this morning is that the judgment of God is indeed coming to this earth. Just like that hurricane came in. Just like we saw last week, Hurricane Dorian, the tide came into the Bahamas. It came into the Outer Banks there in North Carolina. There's coming a day when the tide of God's judgment is coming in. It's coming to this earth. And so today's sermon is a warning sermon. And I want to make three warning statements as we think about 
uh, the judgment of God. Number one, the judgment of God is coming on the unsaved. It's very important that we understand that. God's judgment one day will come to the unsaved. Now, to those of us who have been saved, we will never be judged for our sins. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He was punished. He was judged for our sins. He took our sins upon Himself, and He was punished for them. And so when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus received our faith, and then He gave us, in exchange, His righteousness. It was His way of saying, your sins have already been punished. They've already been dealt with, you're forgiven, and you are now saved. And so the judgment of God is not coming on those of us who are saved. Remember back in the Old Testament, God got Lot out of Sodom before the fire and brimstone fell. God got Noah and his family into the ark before the rain came down. And one day at the rapture of the church, God is going to get all of us who belong to him out of this world, up into heaven, to be with him before the judgment comes. But the judgment of God is coming to the unsaved. Statement number two, the judgment of God. We don't hear much about the judgment of God. We would rather hear about something else. But the judgment of God is a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31, the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a horrifying, terrible thing to think that one day God would judge you and punish you for your sins. Now, in our scripture for today, we come to another part of the judgment of God. We studied in chapter number 6 about the opening days of the tribulation. The song we sang at the outset of the service today, Is Jesus Worthy? Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 5, we, John is having this glimpse of heaven and he sees that God the Father is seated on his throne and in his right hand he holds a, he holds a scroll. And that scroll has seven seals around it. And the question in heaven was, is there anyone worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and to begin to unwrap the seals so we'll know what has been written in the scroll? And no one in heaven was found worthy until finally it was pointed to John's attention that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was worthy to open the scroll. And so Jesus went up to God the Father, took the scroll out of his hand, and he began to open that scroll seal by seal. In chapter 6, we saw the first six seals. The first seal, the Antichrist coming to the earth on a white horse. Second seal, there was war. Third seal, famine. Fourth seal, widespread death. Fifth seal, cry of the martyrs. Sixth seal, uh, cosmic disturbances we saw. And then, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in chapter 7. Notice what it says in chapter 7 and verse 1. Notice what John said. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And so at this point in the tribulation, God stopped the judgment. God called a timeout. God stopped the winds of judgment from blowing, and the tide stopped coming in for a while. And during this time of calm, 144,000 Jewish people will get saved. Many Gentiles will be saved. And so it's a wonderful thing. But we pick up today in chapter 8 and in verse number 1. And it says, Then Jesus opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so now as Jesus is opening up this seal, heaven becomes completely silent. There's no more praise. There's no more worship. The angels are quiet. 
The 24 elders are quiet. The four living creatures are quiet. Everything in heaven is silent. And the reason for that silence, my belief for that, is because there's a sense in heaven that fury and wrath and judgment of God is going to be poured out on this earth. And there's a 30-minute pause. It is the calm before the next phase of the storm. In verse 2, John said, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, you may never have thought about seven angels standing before God, and I may never have thought about it either. But the fact is, if you died today and you went to heaven, one of the first things you would see when you got there would be the throne of God. You would see God, see Jesus Christ. You would see the seraphim. It's another category of angels flying around the top of the throne. You would see the cherubim, another class of angels guarding the throne. But in addition to that, you would see seven angels standing in front of of the throne of God. They are their own classification of angels. Notice again in verse 2, John said, Then I saw the seven angels. Notice that definite article, the. He didn't just say, I saw seven angels. It's not like these seven angels just happened to show up in front of the throne. They are seven angels who are appointed to stand before the throne of God. And at this point in the tribulation, each of these angels will be given a trumpet And they will begin to blow their trumpet. And with the blowing of each trumpet, there is an announcement of something that is about to happen on the earth. Even today, trumpets announce something important. If a dignitary is about to walk into a room, somebody oftentimes might play a trumpet, sound a trumpet, and that gets everybody's attention. Here's the trumpet sound. Who's fixing to come in? And here comes the important person in. Or maybe in some countries, an announcement or a proclamation by a king is going to be made. They'll blow a trumpet. Everybody's quiet. And then the king gives the proclamation. Well, here in heaven, these seven angels each have a trumpet. And they're going to blow those trumpets. And when they do, bad things are going to happen on the earth. Verse 3, then another angel, that is, there's, there's an eighth angel now, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Did you know every time you pray, your prayers are placed in a prayer bowl? And that prayer bowl is offered up to God. It's like your prayers come up like incense as an offering to God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God and from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. So now this angel takes the censer, fills it with fire from the altar in heaven, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And so before these angels even blow their trumpets, you're already seeing judgment, further judgment coming onto the earth. The interlude is past. It is though the winds have now began or begun to blow again. Noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And this leads us up to the the trumpet judgments. Now, I said in the first service that originally I had planned on preaching today on chapters 8 and 9. And I said to them at the beginning, I think we'll only have time for 8, chapter 8. So let's see how we do on our time in here. The first trumpet, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. 
and a, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. And so at this point, with the first angel sounding that trumpet, a third of the trees completely destroyed. All of the grass completely burned up. The vegetation has been struck. Verse 8, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Think about what a large percentage of the earth is made up of the oceans. And here, when the second angel sounds, the ocean waters, a third of those waters will turn to blood. The sea creatures, a third of them will die, and it will be a horrible thing. Now, when it says something like, notice all through this passage, John is saying it was something like, it looked like it was this, it was something as. John is trying to take what he's seeing and put it in language, but he's having to compare it to other things because he's never seen anything like this before. So John's having a hard time even putting what he's seeing in, in, in language. And so he says, it was something like a great mountain burning with fire. People have speculated, is this a meteor? What in the world is this? Is this a falling star, a big falling? What, what is happening? I don't think there's any reason to speculate. It just says it was something like a great mountain. We all know what a big mountain looks like. And it's on fire. And so we can all imagine what this mountain on fire looks like. And it destroys a third of the seas. Verse 10. Then the third angel sounded. And a great star fell from heaven. Burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers. And on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And so now there's this star that falls, not on the oceans, but now we're talking about the fresh water, rivers, lakes, and streams. And a third of these waters are destroyed, and many people will die because they're naturally drinking, wa- drinking from this water. And so the waters are struck with this Uh, star called Wormwood is a bitter, bitter thing. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. And I looked and I heard an angel flying. Some of the translations say an eagle flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And so at this point, this angel that's flying around in heaven, or maybe it's an eagle. We're not clear what it is flying around in heaven. But it says, as bad as this has been, as bad as it has been for the vegetation to be struck, the oceans, a third of it to become blood, a third of the fresh water to become uh, bitter. Now uh, that the lights are going out, it's even going to get worse. But notice this fourth trumpet blast. It says, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars will lose their brilliance. They'll lose their brightness. It will be darker on the earth than it's ever been. Think of it this way. It's like, at this point in the tribulation, the lights are going out on the way to hell. Can you imagine what it would be like to go outside after this service today and it be a third of the, dark, of the brightness that it is now? Or even at night. We think about it at nighttime. Boy, it's dark at night. Yes, but when the moon only 
it loses a third and the stars lose a third of their brightness, it won't be as bright as it is now. It will even be darker. And what is God doing? God is giving the people living on the earth at this time a glimpse of what the tribulation, of what hell will be like. It's getting darker. And what God is in fact saying, he's saying, yes, this is bad. Yes, this is frightening. But if you don't get saved, if you don't repent, one day you're going to end up in hell where there's outer darkness. There's no light at all. And so God is giving a warning. Well, we've covered chapter 8. Do you want to go ahead and do chapter 9? If you do, say amen. We're making pretty good time. Nobody's asking any questions. And so we're moving on pretty good. In chapter 9, fifth trumpet. Then the, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Your translation may say, to the shaft of the abyss. Underneath us today, in the underworld, there's an abyss. It is a place where many demons have been confined. Now, we know from other places in the Bible that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I wish the devil were in the bottomless pit right now, but he's not. He's on the loose. And we also know that many of his angels, many of his fallen angels, the demons, are working with him. But the Scripture also teaches us that there's some angels who are so wicked that they have already been placed in the underworld. They have been placed in a bottomless pit. Sometimes you'll hear me say that when a person dies, if that person's not saved, they don't go immediately to hell. They go to a place called Hades. And Hades is where unsaved people are now. Eventually, they'll go to hell. But the Bible teaches that under Hades, you talk about like being under the jail, under Hades is a place called Tartarus. And Tartarus is a place where many demons have been chained and where they're sentenced to even now. It appears to me that this bottomless pit is something even different than Tartarus. It is another place altogether. It is the abyss, and it is the place where wicked, evil demons are right now. Verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now remember, the 144,000 Jews have been saved. They have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so these locusts coming up out of the abyss, out of this bottomless pit, cannot harm them. But notice what they do. Verse 5, they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. If you've ever been stung by a scorpion, you know that there's no pain in the world like that. Sometimes it's fatal, but always it's excruciatingly painful. And here these locusts are coming up out of the abyss, out of the bottomless pit, and they're able to strike people, to sting people, like a scorpion. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. 
and they had breast they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, both of those names, Abaddon and Apollyon, it means the destroyer. So imagine a bottomless pit filled with many wicked demons, and yet there's a leader over those. It's Apollyon, and he is the chief destroyer, and yet he is ruling over these other demons, which makes me say, and many others say, I believe that these locusts coming out of the pit are actually either demons or they're locusts who have been infested by demons. It's one or the other. It's either a demon in the shape of a locust, or it's a locust that has been inhabited by a demon. And they're going out, and they're doing all these horrible things. And then in verse 12, John said, or the angel said, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now, let's just stop right here. This is heavy stuff. It's a warning from God. And God is saying, you need to understand, if you don't get saved, one of these days, if you're living on the earth during the tribulation, not only is it going to get darker out there, not only will the sun, moon, and stars lose much of their brightness, but there's going to be pain as these demon-possessed locusts come up from the abyss and go out and sting people. This is a warning sermon. And yet many people hear this and say, John, this is not why I come to church on Sunday. I don't come to church to hear some warning about demon-infested, demon-possessed locusts going out and doing I need you to stand up there today and tell me how to have a better week, or how to get along with my coworkers better, or how to, have, how to do better at work. I need you to do something more practical. Listen, a lot of our sermons are practical, and a lot of what the Bible is teaching is telling us how to have a better week and how to get along with others. But part of God's Word is a warning, and God has put this passage in the Scripture to say to people who've never been saved, you need to wake up, you need to think, because if you don't make peace with God, one day you could experience this, and if you're not living when this happens, you'll experience something far worse than this. You see, even the people who are going through the tribulation, who are being stung by these, by these scorpion-like locusts, God is saying to them, as bad as this pain is, if you don't get saved and have your sins forgiven, one day you'll end up in hell where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The pain of these locusts does not compare to the pain of hell. And so here's the warning. But did you know this? If I were preaching this sermon on television today, people would change a channel about right here. And they would say, man, I don't know who he is or what he's reading, but I don't, that's not what I need today. Well, it may be exactly what you need. God put it in his word because he knew on one level or another it's what we would need. And he's giving us a warning. Verse 13, sixth angel, sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the tr trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now let's just stop right there. A third of mankind are being killed. Go back in chapter 6. I want to show you something that we've already seen. And in chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 7, we read about the fourth seal, which was widespread death. 
when Jesus opened, verse 7, the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to him, to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So at that point, a fourth of the earth's population will be killed. Let's review. Today, there are about 8 billion people living on the earth. Studies tell us about 2 billion are saved. So at the rapture of the church, 2 billion of us are taken to heaven. 6 billion remain on the earth. Here we have in chapter 6, a fourth of 6 billion killed. What is a fourth of 6 billion? It is 1.5 billion. That takes the earth's population down to 4.5 billion. Picking up again in chapter 9, at where we just read at the end of verse 15, that these angels, they had the power to kill a third of mankind. What is a third of 4.5 billion? It is 1.5 billion, taking the earth's population down to 3 billion people. Half of the earth's population will be killed with the fourth seal and with the sixth trumpet judgment. It is widespread destruction that is happening here. And look in verse 16. It says, The number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. Many speculate on who is this 200 million man army. Who are these people in this army? And, you know, we could certainly guess or we could speculate, but the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly who this army is. Verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Again, this is a strong warning. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind were filled by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. And so it's, it's, it's horrible what is happening here. There's this, there's this widespread death once again. And many billions of people will be killed. Now, it's interesting, as I was preparing this sermon, I just felt like in the preparation process, God said to me, John, I know when you get up there to preach on Sunday, you're going to have an outline, you're going to have points, you're going to make statements, you're going to say a lot of things. But the best thing you could do for this sermon on Sunday would be to read to the people what my word says is going to happen. And so there we have it. Not my word, God's word, black ink on white paper, what will one day happen in the great tribulation. And it brings us back to our point, the judgment of God is a fearful thing. It is not something to be trifled with, played with, laughed at, minimized, or put off and play like it's not ever going to happen. It is a terrible thing, a fearful thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the third statement I want to make today is this. The judgment of God is accompanied by the mercy of God. And if that makes you happy, say amen. I'll tell you, it makes me happy. To know that even God in His judgment and wrath and punishment of sin, in wrath, God always remembers mercy. And yet, in this case, what's happening on the earth at this time, when three billion people have been killed, and all hell is literally breaking loose, people are coming up from the under-earth, demons and making things horrible, that People who have a chance to get saved choose not to get saved. Look in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, 
that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Now, had you never read this before, or if I had never read in the book of Revelation before, and I'm reading along all these judgments coming, and then it says, now the rest of mankind, I would expect it to say, the rest of mankind asked God to forgive them of their sins and save them so they could be spared from any further suffering like this. But that's not what it says. It says they refuse to repent. Why? Because they would rather worship false gods than to bow their knee to the true God. Verse 21, we see even more insight. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. The Greek word for sorceries there is the word from which we get our word pharmacies, talking about drugs. One of the reasons people will not repent at this point in the tribulation is because they would rather have murder, anger, hatred in their heart, and they would rather abuse drugs than to bow their knees and confess Christ and walk away from that lifestyle or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What are people doing? They're saying, you know what? It's horrible. It's bad. I know people are dying all around us, but I would rather live. The Bible calls it sexual immorality. What they will say is, I would rather continue in my life of sexual freedom. And you read that and you think, freedom, man, what are you thinking? The world is coming apart. Hell is busting loose on the earth. God is giving you a chance to be saved. And you would rather have sexual freedom. You would rather have hatred in your heart. You would rather use and abuse drugs. You would rather take what doesn't belong to you. You would rather worship at some other altar than the altar of God than to bow your knee to Christ and be saved. And I wrote it in my notes last night when I was finishing this sermon. Here it is. What's it going to take? To get people to turn to God. I mean, you just wonder what else God have to do. I mean, he's pouring out his judgment, his wrath, and yet he's giving a people a chance to be saved. And they're putting it off. And they're holding on to their sin. Instead of letting go of their sin and receiving Christ and going a different way. And I think, you know what? We're not in the tribulation, but there are people today who are doing the same thing. There are people today who are saying, I would rather worship the idol of whatever that idol may be. In our day, it's normally not a little wooden statue. It's another person. It's a sport. It's a hobby. It's a job. It's a career. It's a reputation. That's your idol because that's what you think about all the time. Some people say, I'd rather have that than have God. I'd rather use drugs than have God. I'd rather be sexually free than have God. I'd rather be able to have this anger in my heart than to have God and, and have to forgive people I don't want to forgive. I'd, I'd rather take what doesn't belong to me than to have God and have to go out and work for what I have. And so the day in which we're living in that sense is not a whole lot different than this. And yet what Scripture says, it is saying to us like those two meteorologists were saying that I did not want to hear the tide is coming in. And you better make preparations. Now, we can always find another weatherman out there saying, no, I think somehow this is not going to happen. I think this is all metaphorical language, symbolic language. It's not really like John's saying. It's not really exactly like the Bible's written. Somehow this is just not going to come to me. And we feel more comfortable with that. And yet the Bible says the tide of God's judgment is coming to this earth. And if you have never been saved, what is being des described here will one day be your experience. Now, I wish this wasn't even in the Bible. I wish there wasn't even any such thing as the tribulation, the judgment of God. But there is, because God is holy. And as a holy God, he has to punish sin. Think about this. If God were ever going to go easy on sin, it would have been when Jesus took our sins and died on the cross. If God were ever going to say, okay, no judgment, it's on Jesus, I'm going to overlook that. No, even on Jesus, 
God didn't go easy on sin. And so every sin that is not forgiven will one day be punished and it will one day be judged. It's interesting, about the middle of the week, I had a thought run through my mind. I don't know if it was from me. I don't know if it was from God. You can decide. But I had a thought that ran through my mind that said, John, you ought to write a little poem about the judgment of God and compare it to the tide. We live on the Gulf Coast. We know all about hurricanes and the tide coming in. And you ought to write a little poem comparing the judgment of God to the tide of the ocean. And so I said to myself, I said, well, on Saturday afternoon, I'm going to sit down get a piece of paper and a pen or a notebook and a pen. And if the poem comes smoothly and easily and without any effort on my own, I'll do it. And if I'm having to struggle with it and work for two or three hours on it, then it's not of God because it wouldn't take that long if it was from God. And so I won't read the poem, and the people will never know because you didn't know anything about it till right now anyway, did you? And so yesterday afternoon about 3 o'clock, I sat down, and I said, well, Now, Lord, I'm going to try because I think you put this on my heart to write a poem. And if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Now, let me say this about my poems before I get started. My poems are kind of down-home and folksy, okay? If we were in a seventh-grade English class together, I would get about a B-minus on all, all my poems because they have a very predictable cadence, and it's all kind of the same. I understand that, but you know what? I like my poems, and that's okay, and so I think it's okay. But I want to just read this to you, and as I read it, I think it's a good way to wrap this sermon up. I want you to think... The judgment of God, the tide of the ocean. I've called the poem, When the Tide Comes In. The judgment of God upon human sin is like the tide of the ocean. It always comes in. When the tide's out at sea and the shoreline's sublime, the tide still comes in. It's just a matter of time. The moon up above affects the waters below. And when the tide comes in, those on the shoreline will know. What's true of the tide is true of God's wrath. It's coming to all who stand in its path. When the tide of God's judgment comes rolling in, it will completely consume those with unconfessed sins. For our God is holy and sins must be erased. That's why he sent Jesus to die in our place. The judgment of sin that I should have received was all placed on Jesus. I'm glad I believed. So when God's tide of judgment comes crashing ashore, I'm thankful to know I won't be here anymore. I'll be up in heaven clothed in pure white because because the blood of our Jesus makes me clean in God's sight. So I have not a doubt what will happen to me, but when God's judgment rolls in, where will you be? If you've not received Christ, your your sins are still on you. So when the tide of judgment comes in, what will you do? My advice is simple. Prepare for God's judgment today. Ask Christ to forgive you and to take your sins away. He took your judgment when he died on that tree. If you'll trust him to save you, he'll set your soul free. When the judgment comes in, you'll be in heaven above, covered by his grace and wrapped in his love. So why not receive him on this day and hour? He'll save you forever and give you his power. And the judgment to come when God's patience is through, the tide of that judgment 
will never touch you. Amen. That's why I love this church. You clap for a B-minus poem right there. And I'll love you forever for that. Friend, if you've never been saved, I can assure you that you're not here today by accident. We would love to have you join our church, but the most important thing is not that you join our church. The most important thing is that you have your sins forgiven, that you receive Jesus Christ into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. So when the tide of God's judgment comes to this earth, you will be safely home in heaven with me, with God the Father, with Jesus the Son, and with all of those who've ever been saved. And if you've never received Christ, or if you're not sure that you have, I beg you today, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, pray this prayer. I beg you today to pray this prayer. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can pray it right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to be out of here before the tide of your judgment comes in. God, thank you today for giving me an opportunity to be saved, to be forgiven. And God, I'm not going to be like those people written about in the Bible who refuse to repent. God, today I choose to repent. I let go of all my sins, all my anger, sexual immorality, drug abuse that I may have, dishonesty, worshiping something other than you. God, as best I can, I'm asking you today to forgive me of my sins and to give me a new life. I need to be changed from the inside out. I don't need to be reformed. God, I need to be saved. I'm asking you to change me, forgive me, save me, change me, make me a new person. Lord, welcome to my heart. Thank you that I'm saved. And not only saved, thank you that I'm safe. And God, thank you that just like you got Lot out of Sodom before the fire and brimstone came down. God, just like you got Noah into that ark before the flood came down. God, I thank you that you're going to get me out of here before the tide comes in. And I thank you that I'm safe in you. Now, God, today, during this last song, give me the courage to come forward, to openly, publicly, unashamedly confess you as Lord and Savior. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, for those of you who've just been saved, or for those of you who were saved before today, but you've never received, you've never confessed Christ publicly. In a, in a moment, we're going to ask you to come to the front. I'll be here. Other ministers will be here. And you can take one of us by the hand and say, today I prayed that prayer. In the early service, a man came and said, I've already been saved, but I need to be baptized. Some of you need to do the same thing today. Others, you're saved and baptized, but you feel God leading you to be a part of this church family. And so we want to give you an opportunity today to do that. You can just come as a student. We've got a lot of students here again today. As a couple, as a family, as a single adult. And just say, today, I want to put my life in First Baptist. There are several here today who need to do that. Father, may decisions be made during this next song that would honor you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said.